So I'd like to begin the talk this evening by reading to you the commitment that is called the Bodhisattva Vow. And it begins by saying, though the many beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Though greed, hatred and ignorance rise endlessly, I vow to end them. Though the Dharma is vast and fathomless, I vow to understand it. Though Buddha's way is beyond attainment, I vow to embody it fully. This vow is recited in countless temples and monasteries and by individuals in their own practice around the world on a daily basis. It's a vow that reaffirms in people's hearts and minds the essence of meditation practice and the essence of the spiritual path. As sometime around the first century AD in northern India, or probably what is now called Afghanistan, one of the most graceful and powerful texts in the Buddhist tradition was composed in Sanskrit. And it's a text that came to be known, has come to be known as the Lotus Sutta. And the central theme in this um, sutta or discourse is the portrayal of a very powerful and boundless compassion that is said to be the embodiment of the enlightened mind. It's a compassion that is said to pervade all corners of the universe, relieving anguish and pain and suffering wherever it touches and shines. Now in this text, the Lotus uh, Sutta, the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara is spoken of and translated Avalokiteshvara is one who listens to the sounds of the universe or one who hears the cries of the world. When the Lotus Sutta was translated into Chinese somewhere around 400 AD, the name Kuan Yin began to emerge as the embodiment of compassion. And Kuan Yin, this is actually a deity of Kuan Yin behind me here. Kuan Yin has continued to occupy a very central place in this teaching and tradition ever since. Now, over the centuries, Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin has been portrayed in a variety of different ways. The way that we're, most of us are most familiar with is the way in this deity behind me, where Kuan Yin is depicted as a somewhat feminine presence with a serene face, a graceful body. She's often portrayed with her arms outstretched and her eyes open, a receptive, a warm, and embracing presence. 
She's usually shown seated on a lotus flower, the lotus being the symbol of the deepening and the opening and the flowering of heart and mind. Very often this deity is shown with one hand holding a book of suttas or a book of discourses, which is a symbol of the understanding of emptiness. The other hand is often shown holding a vase, a symbol of the outpouring of a bottomless love and compassion. Now, over the centuries, other manifestations of Kuan Yin have manifested. In China, she's often portrayed as holding in her hand a willow branch a symbol of her capacity to bend in the most fierce storms and struggles and winds of life and yet not be broken. It's a symbol of resilience, of being able to spring back upright. Sometimes to the weeping willow branch is uh, said to be a symbol of the compassionate care for the ills of the world. Sometimes Avalok Heshvara is portrayed with a thousand arms and hands. You may have seen that and in the center of each hand is an eye. And the eye in these thousand hands is said to be a symbol of the constant awareness of suffering and the all-embracing compassion. I think another portrayal, which sometimes initially seems a little bit puzzling, is Kuan Yin is sometimes portrayed as an armed warrior coming with a multitude of weapons like a medieval fighter, crossbows, thunderbolts, spears, swords, bows. And that warrior presentation is said to be an embodiment of, com of compassion's commitment to protecting life, to uprooting the causes of anguish. So Kuan Yin is portrayed in these many different dimensions as being both a protector, a guardian, as fearless. Now one thing I think is very important to understand is that all of these different portrayals of Kuan Yin are of course not an invitation to create some sort of idealized, separate um, figure or aspiration that is projected into the future. It's more like these different portrayals are an invitation to appreciate the many different facets of compassion. But mostly, too, these portrayals are an invitation to commit and to embody inwardly in our own lives, our own capacity for compassion. I think with compassion, it's very important not to be dualistic. We can perhaps be, you know, very naturally drawn to the very 
kind of gentle, serene, nurturing, receptive aspects of compassion. But I feel it's also important to remember that compassion can also and needs to be also at times both fierce and fearless wholeheartedly engaging with bringing about the end of suffering. It's almost as if this compassionate receptivity and this compassionate agency or action are like different expressions of one whole. And both of them are necessary if there's to be a genuine embodiment of compassion that truly relieves anguish. The very central (coughs) to profound uh, compassion is this quality of commitment. The commitment to ending sorrow, the commitment to ending suffering in all its forms and equally the commitment to bringing about an end to the causes of suffering in all their forms. It is often said that compassion emerges from a profound understanding of emptiness. And yet too, compassion engages unconditionally with this world of form, with this very real world of people and events who suffer loss and sorrow and hatred and anger. In the Diamond Sutta, which is one of the Mahayana discourses on compassion, It's written that any bodhisattva who undertakes the practice of meditation should treasure one thought only. Understanding perfect wisdom, I will vow to liberate all beings from the wheel of suffering and sorrow. And yet when vast, unthinkable myriads of beings have been liberated, truly no being has been liberated. Why? Because no bodhisattva, who is a true bodhisattva, entertains such concepts as self or other. Thus, there are no sentient beings to be liberated and no self to attain perfect wisdom. Now, this apparently paradoxical statement I think what it does is it illustrates illustrates the very powerful marriage of both understanding the nature of emptiness and yet being very fully present in the world of beings who do suffer, who do experience pain and anguish. Now, in speaking about the bodhisattvas, we're not speaking about idealized figures who inhabit some other realm. I think it is very clear in the teaching of compassion 
that the classroom of the Bodhisattva is this life. That the classroom of the Bodhisattva is in the commitment to understanding the causes of sorrow and ending sorrow in this life. This is what, it is that commitment that really creates the mind and the heart of the Bodhisattva. I think it's probably evident that any of us can be compassionate from a distance. You know, we can all be, of course, very compassionate when we're undisturbed and when we're flattered and when we're surrounded by people who love us and support us and reinforce us. The true compassion is not forged from a distance. It is often forged in the fires of conflict and sorrow and grief and despair. It is right, Shanti Deva, one of the primary teachers of compassion from the past, kept pointing people to explore their life as the classroom of compassion giving the instruction, saying, whatever you are doing, ask yourself, what is the state of my mind? With constant mindfulness and alertness, accomplish good. This is the practice of the Bodhisattva. A compassion is needed so urgently, simply because there is life, and there is a sorrow in this life that I think at times seems bottomless. And to respond, of course, we are asked to be present, to understand the causes of sorrow wherever they arise. And it's not about saving or serving or even not even about helping others. But more compassion is about that open-hearted willingness to probe beneath the surface of pain wherever it arises and to have a commitment to bringing about its end. Milarepa, one of the great yogis in the Tibetan tradition once said that long accustomed to contemplating compassion I can no longer see the difference between self and other. There is of course a universality in the experiences of grief and anger and fear and rage. There's a universality in the experiences of despair, frustration and sadness. I think sometimes when we are in the midst of any of those experiences, those feelings, we can be convinced that no one has ever felt like this before. And yet, in truth, there is really no pain that we can experience 
that hasn't been experienced before by another in a different time, a different place. Now that reality does not in any way lessen or diminish the suffering in our own life. But I think more and more we come to understand the possibility of the human heart to know both pain and joy, to know both sorrow and happiness, to know both fear and trust. A friend of mine a couple of years ago, her husband died, a man she'd been married to for many, many years. And after his death, she spoke about how incredibly isolated and alone she felt, how truly bereft. And she said that her anguish and her grief was actually in a way made worse because she was so reluctant to continually impose the depth of her pain upon others, upon her friends. So very often when people would ask her how she was doing, she would kind of smile and say, you know, she was doing okay, she was coping. Even though she felt the bottomlessness of her grief, and she said that at one point it actually, she was actually suffering so much she felt moved to go and, and attend a bereavement group. And she, she said she sat in this room, this room that was filled with people, all of whom had lost someone that they loved deeply. And she said she sat there and she just listened to one person's story of their broken heart after another, as each person in the room spoke. And she said in that room there really wasn't any endeavor by anybody to fix anything or to try and make anyone feel better or to reassure people that at some point their grief would end. But what there was in that room, she said, was this tremendous open space in which there was genuine listening. And in that listening, that sense of being listened to, of being received, she said that this was the most profound experience of compassion she had ever encountered in her life. Much of the sorrow and pain in this life, it seems to me, is born of a very profound and unquestioned belief that we exist separate and independent and apart from the rest of the universe. We can go through our life very much feeling and believing and living this separation. And in the depths of this belief, it's perhaps somewhat inevitable that one of our primary concerns becomes the survival and protection and enhancement of this isolated and separate self. 
we can go through our life feeling to be one vulnerable and fragile self living in a world of many separate selves that are not always benevolent. We compete with these many other selves. Sometimes we're anxious about the sense of others or we can crave their attention. We can try to impress, to be someone. I think what we don't always appreciate is the way in which our feeling of vulnerability is reflected in the myriad mirrors of the countless beings around us. Christian mystic once said that anxiety and sadness are actually the mood of isolation. They're the mood of separation. Feelings that can be so difficult to embrace, that anxiety and sadness. So rather than embracing that kind of existential anxiety, sometimes what we do is that we, we go out and we fill our lives with so much busyness and doing and distraction and layers of camouflage to protect ourselves from feeling too deeply that sadness of separation. However, in the busyness of protecting ourselves, I think sometimes we also deny ourselves. It's a wonderful piece of a poem by Pablo Neruda from his poem, Keeping Quiet. And he says, if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Now the gap between self and other it's very rarely neutral or empty. The gap between self and other is the gap where hatred and anxiety and prejudice and fear live and grow and take root. Our belief in self as separate and isolated can, in very real ways, somewhat segregate us from the rest of the world. My body, my history, my family, my wants, my needs, my fears, my likes, my dislikes, my mind, my heart. These are all what we call the territory of me and mine, separate from you and yours. Sometimes in harmony and sometimes in conflict. Sometimes we find with others common bonds of preferences, of likes, of opinions, and we create an us. Again, an us that can feel very separate and apart from the them. Sometimes existing in harmony, sometimes in conflict. 
two years ago I read a newspaper article that had tried to uh, find the source of one of the outbreaks of violence in Northern Ireland. And they said that as they talked to a number of people who were involved that they said what they discovered had happened is that one day just two ordinary women, one Catholic and one Protestant, had gone out of their houses at different times to do one of these ordinary daily things, their, their grocery shopping. And returning home from opposite directions, they, they met on the pavement. And both of them just simply refused to give way to the other. And that within a short space of time, you know, angry words were exchanged, the crowd gathered, stones were thrown. In the end, someone was shot and was killed. The conflict of us and them that can be so powerful I think we can, on a, almost on a daily basis, practice this almost an unconscious apartheid that keeps ourselves separate and closed to you and them, which seems to threaten the foundations of me and us. Around a similar time, I read another story about two women in northern Canada who, in the midst of an ice storm, had both been uh, needed to go out to attend to emergencies in their family. One daughter was giving birth to a child, the other, her mother, was ill. These two women, too, in the midst of this ice storm, went out from opposite directions, and they met at a place on the highway where a big tree had crashed down across the road, blocking the road, so that neither of them could go any further. They got out of their car, they exchanged keys, got in each other's cars, <laughs> turned around, and both went to do what they needed to do. It is so amazing the way sometimes we can be so caught in the separation, and how at other times the separation can so crumble. And one is the place of suffering, and one is the place of the end of suffering. I do feel that a very profound compassion really rests upon this commitment to understanding and to dissolving this almost invisible barrier that keeps us imprisoned in this isolated and separate self. We do understand with meditation that delusion is not a terminal illness or a life sentence. We have the freedom to question. We have the freedom to investigate. We have the freedom to choose how we perceive ourselves and the world. <coughs> All of us have experienced moments like those women in Canada when there's a falling away of the sense of separateness. And they are moments of opening, of embracing, of welcoming. When we can look into the eyes of a homeless person, when we can truly hear the anguish of someone imprisoned and lost in a kind of loveless world, when we can 
sense the frailty of an elderly man and woman just as they make what seems a tremendous journey just to cross a road. And in those moments we actually feel that pain quivering in our own heart. And as I've mentioned in this tradition, it's not assumed that those moments of crumbling are lucky accidents that are left to chance. What is encouraged, I think, instead, is a very relentless inner questioning of separation and a very relentless probing of the ways in which we perpetuate separation. And we really can, through meditation and through questioning, challenge this seemingly impenetrable core of self that lies at the centre of our experience. Now, most of us know very well that it's not enough just to want to feel compassion. And it's certainly not enough just to hold fine theories of emptiness. That that longing somehow needs to be translated into the, the wordless language of direct understanding. This is the kind of fierce compassion which is really dedicated to melting the barrier. So part of that questioning is really examining what does this sense of an isolated and separate self really rest upon? Well, if we were all to sit down and write a short autobiography with each sentence beginning with the words, I am, we would soon see what it rests upon. Our appearance, our bodies, our minds, our histories, this is the story of ourselves. Now sometimes this story of ourselves seems like a very long story, one that began, as I mentioned, even before we were born. But what we also see in the story of ourselves is that it's constantly being rewritten. It's not like there's one static, eternal story of me. That the story of self is being rewritten through new experiences, being rewritten through new understanding. That only when the story of self is not questioned or, or when it's not examined, then the story of ourself, I think, very much remains a kind of closed book, a sort of finished manuscript. Then, that's when we are really imprisoned in our story, our assumptions about ourselves. And when we look at the story of self, we see that it can be written by clinging. It can be written by what we identify with, my gender, my prejudice, my opinions, my race, my thoughts, my feelings. I think it becomes evident that when our story is written by what we cling to, it then it continues to foster and to solidify the distance and separation. We think about how we define others. If we take someone in our life and write a biography of them, 
with each sentence beginning with you are, then we see how we define other. By their race, by their bodies, by their histories. Sometimes when our stories rest upon clinging, we can even have an investment in separation because we don't want our assumptions, our images to be challenged or overturned because then who would we be? Who would we be without that story? I think fear can keep us holding and can keep us clinging to protect and defend ourselves. If you notice, if someone hurts you or offends you or annoys you, how very quick we are to write their story for them. You know, they're so mindless, they're so insensitive, you know, they're so disconnected, you know, they're so harsh, all these things, you know, our list gets longer and longer. Because we not only want to solidify the self, we want to solidify other by their story. Some, a few years ago, well, a couple of years ago, just after the World Trade Center was bombed in New York, some of the people in the Sangha in London had invited us to come up and to participate in a day that was dedicated to, to peace and to healing. It was a kind of peace vigil. And what happened in that day was really very interesting because, uh, you know, of course, most people who come to a peace vigil already share the same story, don't they? I mean, we don't get many objectors there, you know. So people were going around and they were all speaking of their story of heartache and grief and sadness and, and sorrow. And then at some point in the morning, um, somebody came into the room, uh, this woman came into the room and, you know, she was listening and I, I could just feel she was very agitated, she was very restless, she was, you know, kept moving around the room, changing chairs. And at some point she kind of um, sort of burst out, you know, and she said she didn't have much patience with all this peace stuff, you know, and you know, we should go out and get whoever did this, you know, and do the same to them. Well, you could just feel this in-breath that didn't turn into an out-breath in the room. And it was so interesting because she immediately became the other. You know, right in that moment, in the midst of a peace vigil, it's like she became the enemy, the other. And it's so interesting how that happens in our lives in so many different ways, so often. The moment that our story is a little challenged, the other is created as separate and apart. In doing that, of course, what is often not understood is the story of her own heart by others, but it's often understood as the story of her hurt, her anguish, 
where those words rose from. Instead, the sense of being threatened means almost that instinctive wish to strike out, to resist, to reject, to abandon the person before us. Shantideva once said that the mind does not find peace, nor does it enjoy pleasure or happiness, nor does it find rest or courage when the thorn of hatred dwells in the heart. In brief, there is nothing that can make an angry person happy. Unruly beings are like space. There's not enough time to overcome them. Uprooting these angry thoughts is like defeating all our enemies. Now our story can be written by clinging. It can also be written by compassion. Our willingness to understand and to our willingness to embrace the causes of suffering and to end them through wisdom. Now the path of compassion is not an encouragement to somehow annihilate or eradicate our story. We all do have an appearance in this world. We all have a story in our life. My story is certainly different than yours. Yours is different than the person who sits beside you. Our story is born of the conditions of our lives, conditions which we are not always in control. But that story and those conditions are not the whole of who we are. In reality, our story is actually no obstacle to profound compassion. If we're able to embrace our story with its potential for creating sorrow and also its potential for healing and for evoking joy, then I think in doing that inwardly, in a very real way, we can learn to embrace all stories. This is the path of the Bodhisattva. It is like when Milarepa says, just as I instinctively reach out to care for and heal a wound in my leg as part of my body, why should I not reach out instinctively to heal and care for the wounds in another wherever they exist as part of this body? Cultivating compassion, as I mentioned earlier today, does not imply that we never do feel anger or outrage or fear when we do meet injustice or harshness or oppression or prejudice. Of course we respond. And our response is often one of anger. And, it, you know, notice when you're angry, sometimes these are the most awake moments in our life, aren't they? I mean, like, when we're angry, nobody has to remind us to pay attention. You know, when we're angry, we are so present. We are so awake. Now, that anger can be channeled into harm if it's not understood. In fact, if it's feared. 
but also can be directed into understanding sorrow. This, I think, is really the fearlessness of compassion. That we can, as human beings, choose not to engage with the life and the world we're part of. We can only choose how we engage. And compassion does ask for us to be engaged in every moment, to know when what is really needed is empathy, is listening, is receptivity. When we to know when we really need to be still in the face of suffering, to be empty inwardly, so that we really can listen to the cries of the world. This is the gift of fearlessness, of knowing how to to bend in the storms and knowing that we can come back upright. But compassion too invites us to know when we need to be fearless in our actions, in our speech, in our choices. When to say no with wisdom. When we're being called upon to protect the well-being of ourselves or the well-being of another. Now to protect something from harm it doesn't always mean that we're engaged in great heroic actions to, to move a small creature from the path. Compassion is never, compassion never measures the worth of an action, but I think is as instinctive, or becomes as instinctive as reaching out to heal a wound in our own bodies. It's a beautiful poem I came across by Joseph Brukak. He says, The old man must have stopped our car two dozen times to climb out and gather into his hands the small toads blinded by our light and leaping like drops of rain. The rain was falling a mist about his white hair, and I kept saying, you can't save them all, accept it, get back in. We've got places to go. But leathery hands full of wet brown life, knee-deep in the summer roadside grass. He just smiled and said, they have places to go to. Just as compassion really doesn't measure the value, doesn't measure the worth of any act or response that relieves suffering, neither does it measure the value of suffering itself. I think some people, because of their own stories, their own histories, often feel to be unworthy of compassion or undeserving of that kind of attention. It's very easy to make a hierarchy out of suffering. I think for some people, they, when they face the immense pain they see in the world, you know, a famine and war and illness, they often feel it's kind of inappropriate or self-indulgent 
to care for their own ailing body or their aching heart or their mind with its obsessions. I think genuine compassion doesn't make any hierarchies or have any boundaries. I think if we don't know the way to be steadfast and patient in receiving and tending to the pain in our own lives, I would wonder how we would find the patience and steadfastness to listen to the cries of the world. Learning to receive and to listen to our pain and sorrow in our life, in our own hearts and minds, I feel does enable us to more deeply receive and understand the pain in all hearts and minds and bodies. I think we in the world are probably most endangered, endangered most of all, by the unwillingness to listen to pain and to understand it. And if we try to ignore pain or live in a way of ignoring pain, then that capacity we have for understanding and for healing mostly gets challenged into increasingly deluded activity. Learning to be patient and fearless, receptive to fear and anguish and pain, understanding its causes, can open the door to the arising of the wisdom and the compassion that really makes no distinction between self and other. When we take our seat firmly, I think, in this life, amidst some of the storms, able to bend and come upright again, and more and more we understand, as a friend of mine, Stephen Batchelor, once put it, that we cannot attain awakening for ourselves, that we can only participate in the awakening of life. We have just a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.